Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1996 film Big Night. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great. Um, Barrett, I need to start by telling you when you brought up this movie to me last week, I said, oh, I've never heard of that. And in the weirdest synchronicity on the my walk in to work on Friday morning, I was listening to a movie podcast and wouldn't you know it, somebody made a reference to Big Night. It was so funny to be like, I've never heard of this. And then all of a sudden it comes up. So I, I don't know if I was just tuned in to hear that name differently, but, uh, but it was pretty crazy. Um, so what is your history with this film? You know, I'm trying to remember that. I asked my wife, I said, did we see Big Night in the theater? She said, no, we didn't see the Big Night in the theater. So I'm guessing since it's a mid-90s film that I probably read, uh, saw the review on Ebert and Roper and I mean, so I then picked it up on video. I, I I think I probably saw it not long after it came out because I was trying to remember my history with Stanley Tucci. And I was kind of looking over his filmography and nothing really rang a bell before Big Night. And then I knew when I watched, he was in a 1999 version of Midsummer Night's Dream and I knew him then. So I think Big Night must have been my first exposure to Stanley Tucci. Um. This is interesting. It was interesting watching this because this is uh, this was a Sundance film in in uh, in '96, and I was almost laughing watching it, thinking like, "Man, this feels like like if you if you had the playbook for a like mid '90s independent film, like this ticks." every box that i could think of so i wrote down and we'll talk about some of these things but i wrote down a list of what are the things that makes this feel like a 90s independent film uh it is a very sincere story uh with small stakes relative to like the end of the world like you know it's like okay this is it's about whether this restaurant's gonna work for these brothers right the stakes are relatively small so but it brings you into a subculture or a little world right so you're into the subculture of both Italian American immigrants in this South Jersey town and into this restaurant subculture between Pascal's and the Paradise. Um, an important thing, and I do want to talk about this, is it has a simple elevator pitch. It is very easy to sell this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I tried to write it in a sentence and it was not hard to, to like summarize how you would sell this movie. Um, it's a, a very like personal story and like it's about people. So it is a uh, kind of a relationship movie, a, a hangout movie, almost to a degree. Like there's this bigger story going on, but so much of it is about let's get, let's take all these characters and let's get these two people together. Then let's get these two people together. Then let's mix it up. Like even thinking about the party scene when they're dancing, you're literally see people like switching partners. And like, that feels like the model for this movie. Um, it is full of character actors who are known, but are not movie stars. But it is one of those that you look back on and think, wow, this seems like an overqualified cast retroactively. You're like, there are lots of Oscar nominees, Oscar winners, and like it's 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 a crazy good cast. But I wonder in 1996 if it was like, oh, it's good to see these people getting a shot in this, getting a bigger part in this, you know, that kind of thing. You have uh, an actor, writer, director, which is also, you know, big here. So it's clearly a passion project for Tucci. Um, And then another thing we'll definitely talk about is the theme of art versus commerce is a very 1990s theme. It's a perennial theme, but it's also specifically a very 1990s theme. Did I miss anything? (laughs) I thought so. I think you, I think you ticked all the boxes. I think there's one other little element. I think you actually alluded to this and that is a lot of the, Indie films, uh, indie filmmakers, uh, beginning in the 90s, a lot of them were either brother combinations or friend combinations. Yes. And Campbell Scott, who co-directed with Tucci, 
uh, they went to high school together. And so I, I think that th th there's a sense that the, the, the independent film movement was like making a home movie, but just a little bit elevated. Yes. Um, and so and so it's like, you know, so there often are these friends or even family involved. When you look at the credits, often you see mom and dad are, are, are credited. So, yeah, I think. But otherwise, I think you've got all the all those elements are there. And of course, just the idea that um, I mean, I think these films tend to be well written because they tend to be script driven. And so um, I also think another thing that this does, which is sometimes characters of these films, is it's got a, it's got a, a, a not a major shifts in tones, but it's got different shifts in tones. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of really big laughs in this film, which kind of take you by surprise. There's quiet moments, but it's yeah. So I think you got all the other elements. Speaking of of, of uh, family connections, I assume the co-writer of this, Joseph Trapiano, is probably Tucci's cousin because his yeah. mother's maiden name is Trapiano. So I figured yeah, that's probably also family. Yeah, that's right. That's the other family connection. Yes. Um, so I want to talk about the, um, how important I think the, uh, the premise or elevator pitch of this movie is it's very clean. Um, and I assume this is important for a couple of reasons um, that if you're, if for an independent film, you're looking for backers. So you need to have an easy way to mm -hmm. explain what this movie is, but also you know, as you pointed out, uh, this is a movie you didn't, you maybe were aware of, but, but didn't see in theaters. But this seems uh, a lot of the indies of the mid '90s also seem like video store movies, where it's like, you know, this this actually takes hold maybe a little more when it's sitting on a a, a VHS rack. Yeah. And to do that, to like be drawn to a movie, you have to be able to understand what it is, and probably turn to the person you're going to watch a movie with and say, "Okay, here's what this movie is." So I was trying to figure out, okay, what is the um. What is the 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 one sentence pitch to this? And I think this is one sentence. Uh, so two Italian immigrant brothers who run a small struggling restaurant in South Jersey prepare to host a party for jazz singer Louis Prima, which could save their business and deliver them the American dream. Now, that's not really what the movie's about at its core, but that's how you sell this movie. And it's how it's how it is sold. It's, it's how it was sold to me as I was sort of preparing for this is like, what is this going to be about? And that's definitely the line, uh, the line that that uh, jumped out. Yeah, I think that, I think that captures it. And then you know, and maybe you've got a visual of the food at the same time. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, you know, what a third or a half of the film is just is just celebrating the food, and and th and that's the other way the film kind of gets um, uh, gets promoted or uh, summarized for people. Like it's one of the it, it'll show up in any list of the great food movies, which is what our current arc is about. Or just mm -hmm. to remind our listeners, we're doing food movies, and this is one of those because it just um, in the in the days before Instagram, this is very Instagrammable uh, food that you get in this film. Barrett, I thought a lot about that, and even the 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 poster for this at yes. the top, you have Shalub and Tucci in the middle, um, and then you have Mini Driver and Isabella Rossellini on, to the sides, and then laid out in front of them is is food, right? So so it is definitely being sold in that, and even the title Big Night. Mm. It's to like okay that it's it's almost making the pitch uh making the pitch for you um in in that way uh but uh, you know as i pointed out though i think it also sort of that premise which is easy to explain and easy to kind of sell or easier to sell i think then like allows them to trojan horse in another conversation lots of character moments lots of lots of themes about what these different people want and and i like i said i think i think this is a movie of um, which is the the thing I love the most and why I kind of love independent films of the nineties is I love 
character moments as much as I love plot. I like, I mean, there's lots of scenes in this where it's like these two people having a conversation is like a little movie in and of itself. And like, mm-hmm. I, and I, and I, I get drawn to that. There's plenty of movies where I feel like the movie is fine, but this moment in it is great. And I feel like this movie has a lot of that. And I think Dick Knight also tells you that this is a, this is a movie that's going to, um, as often ca- the case, it, it's it's going to be about love and sex as well as food, and, mm-hmm. and food is kind of linked to the love and the sex. So, you know, there are so many songs in this film, and I and I went and I checked the lyrics of a number of them, and I want to talk about them a little bit later. But several of the songs are are, are love songs of one kind or another. And so it's also, you know, when you think about Big Night, you also think about popping the question, you think about a romantic encounter. And, you know, that's a very kind of interesting subplot that's going through this film, the various uh, romantic relationships and failed relationships. Yeah, I mean, another thing this movie has um, is this is not exactly, but kind of close to an all-in-one day movie. Like you have a little bit on either end, you have the next morning and you have... um, a li- you know you have the day before to sort of set it up but most of this takes place in the build-up to to the big night and then uh what i love is how much of the how much of the event we get and mm-hmm. you know and that 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 this is one of those films where you feel like you're invited to a party and you actually get to attend it by the time i got done watching this movie other than wishing that i could eat i felt like i felt like i went to a party i felt like i experienced this night in the in the paradise well, it makes you wonder, uh, Sam, now that you say that, I wonder how long the shoot was, because if you think about that party, I mean, how many, if if they didn't do that all in one take, right? Can you imagine the labor <laughs> to remake yes. all of that food every time? Or or let's say that, you know, they kind of got the first half. So now what do you do? You put the food out, you have people eat it, and then you start shooting. Anyway, it's just, there's a lot of um, a logistics going on there that one doesn't think about because it unfolds as a continuous action. Maybe it was. I don't know. I don't know anything about the shoot. Well, it is interesting the way when you get to the, and this is to your point about tonal shifts, when you get to the meal, there is this sort of break in the in the rea- well not break in the reality but break in the storytelling where all of a sudden you've this movie has not had title cards all of a sudden you get like menu title cards and then yes. it's like this, now we're going to shoot this course you know <laughs> so i think that that also might be a filmmaking trick to allow yeah. them to be like okay this is the timpano night and we're going to shoot all that stuff yeah, um, yeah, and then the next night we can come back to this set and we can do this other court, you know. So I'm wondering if that's a, a trick to kind of uh, make that work a little bit too. That's, yeah, that's a great point, and I love it when you get to eat dolce. And no, yes, nobody's got anything left. <laughs> yes, yes, because that's another thing I thought about is like they eat so much before the meal, like they drink and eat so much before the meal, and then it's like okay, and now the meal's starting, and the meal just keeps going and going. I have to tell you, Sam, I experienced one of those uh, that was prepared for us personally. Uh, Our family had hosted a student from Italy for several months. And then when we were in Italy, um, after one of our England term trips, we visited the the family. They lived in Milan. And she, the the mother, was the friend of somebody who ran uh, uh, his own restaurant. And we got a private I don't know how many courses we were there for three hours Hmm. Uh, and they just kept bringing them out just like this. Uh, And one of the courses was this absolutely huge, huge uh, Chilean bass. It was, 
it was amazing. But I could relate to the people's feelings there. It's like it yes. keeps coming. <laughs> yes, yes. So one of the other things that I I um really love about the setup of this movie, and it's a it's a a kind of setup that I always enjoy, is the 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 idea of a story that is centered around waiting for the arrival of someone. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that's definitely, you know, someone who is an important figure who is going to bring news or deliverance or something. Right. So, so this, this has, and what I, I was thinking about, you know, why am I drawn to stories like this? And I was thinking, you know, at one level, it's kind of like the, the, the mirror opposite of, like an unexpected deus ex machina because oftentimes the person doesn't come or the person comes and they're not what was expected right so it's Mm -hmm. the opposite of like something that comes at the end Mm -hmm. unexpected and solves the problem instead it's like you start by saying there is it's almost like they're waiting for the thing that that uh they're waiting for the storytelling device right and um and in the in the characters waiting um you know you start to see kind of other thing. You start to see what plays out while they are preparing and waiting for the, uh, for the arrival of this person. So I was trying to think of versions of this. And what's funny is it's like, this is such a very familiar story. And for some reason I could think of a, a couple, but I, but I was struggling to think, why can't I think of more of these? So obviously the, in the 20th century, the like tragic absurdist version of this is waiting for Godot, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and and I'm wondering if in somewhere in the process of making this, somebody thought of the title Waiting for Louis Prima and like they, they finally <laughs> nixed it saying, that's not a, we, we can do better than that, but I'm sure at some point that title was said because it, it fits. Um, and interestingly, the same year, 1996, you get the the heavily comedic version of this in Waiting for Guffman. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, exactly. Where, where, where there is this, you know, the the hope of deliverance or, or promise from this person. And you think that's what it's about, but really it's about all of the life that happens around that preparing for that. And, and that the thing that comes or doesn't come isn't actually the, isn't actually the thing we thought it was. Mm-hmm, exactly. what, can you think of others? St- I, I, I'm, I blanked when I was trying to think, and this was, it's a hard thing to do a Google search for because yeah, yeah. the internet, but, but like, it is a familiar story structure, right? Yeah, it's fairly familiar, but you're right. I mean, the, the the two that you named are the two that came immediately to my mind, which is Waiting for Godot and Waiting for Guffman. And, of course, in Waiting for Godot, Godot doesn't show up, which is true with the, in this film. And Waiting for Guffman, somebody shows up that they think is Guffman, but it really isn't. So that's another play on it. But, no, that's – that's a, yeah, I, I, um, I can't think of anything else off the top of my head. If it comes to me, I'll let you know. Yeah, yeah. So, so I sort of, you know, as I was thinking about this, like this is a, it's it's an interesting version of the the John Lennon line that life is what's happened. Life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. It's like, yeah, yeah. like, like, is this a? So, and that that's where I I love the like the sales pitch of this movie is they're preparing for this big night with Louis Prima, and then you're like, oh, that's just the the structure around watching how much of the human drama plays out over the course of this watching people come and go in different, you know, come and go to the restaurant, watching uh Segundo go out, you know, into the world. He had, you know, meeting with, with Gabriella meeting with Pascal and, and even seeing Primo going to Alfredo. It's like, you're seeing it's, it's, it's kind of a neighborhood movie in that way too, which oddly reminded me a little bit of do the right thing too, where it sort of takes mm-hmm. place in a day and it's, centered around one place but it's about these people moving around through through the world leading up to 
whatever that the end is going to be now um do the right thing doesn't have the sort of necessary promise at the end of the night other mm. than maybe a paycheck um but 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 it i kept thinking about do the right thing as i would watch uh segundo go to, you know yeah. to different different places and encounter different people yeah and I, and I, and i think you know there is a genre just say of the the, the wait the waiting for somebody but there's also the the whole idea that um what happens when you have determined that some specific event is going to be a watershed or a turning point you know so when secundo says uh, after tonight everything will be different right it's that's an ironic line right and we discover that it's ironic but 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 it is interesting that you know there, there are times in our life when we say to ourselves you know this is going to be the moment that makes everything i'm going to become a new person i'm going to have a new relationship i'm going to pursue a new opportunity and it's interesting to see what happens when those plans turn out differently from what you expected because even from pascal's perspective after tonight everything is, is, is different right so so i mean you can take a number of different characters and say for everybody after this night everything is different but it's not the difference that they any of them expected well and even when even when um Segundo is is saying this to to Primo. It's unclear what like like he he's basically saying like tonight has to happen tonight has to work and after tonight everything will be different. It's even unclear as he says it what he means by it because mm-hmm. does he mean like well this is our we're gonna do this one thing and then we're gonna need then whether we want to or not we're gonna need to compromise these things or is it everything's yeah, going right. to be different now you know like like. You didn't. You didn't need to know the ending to to feel like, wow. That's it's just it feels ominous when he says it, and even the way Tucci. I think it's a great Tucci performance for one thing. But but um. But I think every time he delivers that, I think about you know I think about that. No, it it's interesting. It, what you were saying makes me think of, you know, kind of how we sometimes try to create meaning of our in our lives in real time, which is sometimes like you're saying like okay, we've decided tonight is going to be the night where. 20 years from now, when we tell our life story, we're going to talk about this night as the night that led to this. Like we're trying to create meaning before, even before the events happen. Like we're trying mm-hmm. to almost narrativize our lives, you know, in that way. Uh, and it makes me think of the, um, uh, in Field of Dreams, the the Moonlight Graham quote where he says, we don't recognize the most important, important moments in our lives when they're happening. Mm-hmm. This is sort of the opposite of like, we recognize it's, maybe the most important moment in our night of our lives, but we don't know We're even if we can recognize that we can't recognize what it means. And mm-hmm. we're, and, and what I love about the arc of this movie is we end it still not entirely knowing what it's going to mean. I mean, we, we, we know some stuff about the future of that restaurant, but we don't really know much about the future of our characters. No, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, obviously we'll talk about that ending, but right. It's, it's a, it's it's a closure of one kind, but it's an opening up of another of another kind. And in, and in that sense, I think maybe this also is a maybe this is a characteristic of some of the '90s indie films, um, Sam. But I I would call it both a closed and an open ending at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a completely open ending, but it's certainly not a really closed ending. For the for those who like things wrapped up in a bow, it doesn't it doesn't do that. It's got certain kinds of resolutions that are really important, mm-hmm. but it also in, in an effort as a lot of indie films try to achieve a, 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 an aesthetic form that is more lifelike, uh, it leaves a lot of things open. So as we talked about, one of the, the the sort of obvious themes of this movie is 
the uh, the tension between art and commerce. Um, mm-hmm. And we have we have characters who almost wholly represent those things, and then characters who find themselves stuck in the middle of uh, you know of of those poles. Um, and it's a theme and, that we saw with if we go back to Ratatouille. Absolutely. Uh, you know, that's I mean, there are a couple of themes here we saw in Ratatouille, and I think that that's. That's almost an inescapable um, theme when you're talking about food, at least in the context of restaurants. You know, it's not a theme in Babette's Feast necessarily, but this is a film. It's it's not a domestic film, a theme, but it is a um, a commercial theme, as you're saying. Absolutely right, and, and and so so it is a it is a perennial issue or theme, right? Like this is not something specific to this time period, but I do think this film being made in 1996 is coming out of a culture. Oh, um, or or a cultural moment that where where that debate is maybe a little more heightened in certain aspects of pop culture, especially for uh, for Gen Xers, right? I mean, it's in 1993 is when Kurt Cobain dies, but mm-hmm. the whole like grunge movement is is both a commercial enterprise and such an overtly like attempt to be anti-commercial. So uh, it's interesting in his book on the 90s, Chuck Klosterman talks about like how how interesting it is to watch movies from the 90s and it's and he's pointing to a couple other things where he's like it's interesting how certain arguments carried a weight then that even though this still carries that weight that it maybe feels a little different in um so i'm thinking like this movie set in the fifth mid 50s you could have set this movie exactly in 1996 mm. and had some and in and, and some of the weight of that would be similar but i think if you set it in 2015 it would feel different because of the shift we've had in terms of artists and creators needing to be brands. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you talked about like foodie culture, Instagram culture, things like that. Like, like I feel like there is a uh, out of necessity um, uh, that that's not looked at as such a like like a like um, uh, Primo seems very much like he's concerned about selling out his art. Right, you know, right, in a kind right. of way where uh, in the 90s, that was a much uh, a much louder mm-hmm. call you would hear from artists where I feel like in the, the world of social media, that's something that people have maybe come to terms with a little more. Mm-hmm. So setting it in 2015, you could still do it, but I feel like Primo would feel even more like, come on, man, like you've got to <laughs> you got to post stuff to Instagram. You have to do that. Like his whole thing about, you know. Um, it, people should just come for the food. Like he's upset about even, you know, that the, the fish guy gave them a better deal when he heard about Louis Prima, you know? Yeah. And it's like, it, like, like, like that stuff doesn't ring the same, I think in 2015 as it does in the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because um, one of the reviewers I go to from time to time, uh, James Bradinelli, uh his review of the film, he said it reminded him of, and I, I realized I wasn't aware of this. He said the, the pizza wars of the 1980s, Oh yeah, yeah. When, when when Domino's came along, we deliver anywhere for free. The entire he says the entire business changed, and all of a sudden, local pizzerias you know are fighting for their lives. And 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 you know this is the very thing that would drive Primo crazy. Bernard Nelly says people it seems didn't care about quality for the simple convenience of not having to get off the sofa. Many preferred eating flavored cardboard to real pizza. <laughs> so it's like yes, it's uh, but you I, but I I totally agree with you. There's something very. You know, it's Sundance uh, versus the the big the big studios, and um, it's the it's the little guy versus it's the 
local theater versus the the cineplex, which is one way to kind of see Paradise versus uh, Pascal's. So you know, I think you're right. There's a lot of very things very specific to the '90s that are, that are being played out that are yeah, they're they're quite different today, really. Well, I, I like that you that you you pulled this into thinking about independent cinema versus big student because what I we've talked before about how like how many movies you can read that movies that are about artists art especially that you can read is like wow this is really about filmmaking and <laughs> you can do that with this but because the food stuff is so well done it's not like you have to you don't have it's to right. like make the the movie analogy to say like oh this is what because I don't know I mean especially looking at the career of, of Stanley Tucci like. Maybe this is about food for him. Like he seems to be somebody who is. I mean, he does a lot of work in uh, in the in the food world, especially. I think he does a, a TV sh a TV show in Italy. Yes, yes. That, that's largely based around this. So, um, what I like is it's not so. Um, it doesn't need to be about independent film, but it also very much can be. Yes, yeah. but I also like the way along that theme of, of commercialism. I also like the way that they then pull in the Cadillac. Um, and and the and the Campbell Scott character, right? And it's like you know that represents, and, and of course the significance that it's Secundo that goes for the ride in the caddy because that represents this aspect. It, you know, this is also a film. Obviously, um, Sam, as your initial uh, summary suggests, this is a film about the American dream, mm -hmm. and it's about the, the the new world versus the old world, and what and and what do you sacrifice not only in terms of your culinary um principles and pursuit of excellence but what do you sacrifice about your own heritage in order to kind of become part of the american experience and so that's a compromise uh that <laughs> which primo calls the rape of cuisine uh, <laughs> that's the compromise that pascal is willing to make and that's where secundo and primo obviously are are beginning to part ways uh they both have a dream but realizing that dream looks very different depending on what you're willing to compromise culturally mm -hmm. well it's also interesting to, if you're thinking about you know independent cinema and you know being artists versus these other things um you have two prominent uh, actors. One of them is one of the directors of this movie who, you know, in modern parlance would be referred to as Nepo babies, right? You have Campbell Scott, who whose father is George C. Scott, and you have yes. Isabella Rossellini, uh, whose whose mother is Ingrid Bergman. So there's Oscars in their in their um in their parents, right? Yes. So so it is it's like, okay, well, how do you get a movie made? Well, it probably doesn't hurt to have some people who, you yeah. know, have some who have some family pull in the industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, so I, I find that interesting as well. And what now? So, going back to, I want to get to American Dream, but I want to st stay with art and commerce for a second. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting that there are different dyads in the movie of people who are debating this. So you you start with Primo versus Segundo, right? In the 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 opening scene where the the couple is uh, the woman gets the risotto and doesn't see the seafood in it, and then the whole thing about does it come with the side of spaghetti and does the spaghetti come with, I love the line where he says, sometimes spaghetti doesn't want meatballs or whatever he says, like, <laughs> um, um, but then they have, so, so it feels like the movie is setting up to say, this is going to be an art and commerce debate between these two brothers where Secundo is going to represent commerce, commercial things. And Primo is going to represent um, the artistic things. So, uh, you know, Primo says, uh, 
when you know when he doesn't want to give them a side of spaghetti he's like well, should i just serve mashed potatoes as the other side like if we're just doing starches or the idea of like replacing the risotto on the menu and even even secundo's like description of it of why they shouldn't do it makes it sound so good he's like think of all that goes into it and all the time and it's like well yeah that's why i want the risotto and his response is well yeah okay let's try hot dogs hot you dogs. know like yeah yeah and even the way he's like I'm like I I'm reading into that character, but I assume he knows the phrase hot dog, but mm. he's slow rolling it. He's like, what mm. do you call it? What is that? And then he's like, hot dogs. Okay. I think that that's very funny. But so it you know, and, and this is where we get that the the great exchange of um where where Primo says, if you give people time, they will learn. Mm. And Segundo's response is this is a restaurant, not a school. Mm-hmm. which which that both of them are making such great points there you know like like in in essence we don't have time you know um you see primo as i said talking about like being upset that people are gonna be there that night but they're but nobody's coming for the food necessarily right is it should be about that and he's he's upset about anything else that would be um the reason that somebody would come and then at the very end in that in their argument he makes a point which he hasn't made up up until then, which is if I sacrifice my work, it dies. Right? It's like, well, why are why do like Secundo saying like I have to keep making sacrifices? Why don't you make sacrifices? And he's pointing out because what I'm doing, if I sacrifice, it's it will no longer be, and I and, and I will no longer be. He says I should. It would be better if I died than it dies. Right? So so it feels like that's going to be the the dyad, but then you realize as the movie plays out, there is sort of it's really primo versus pascal and segundo is stuck in between those mm-hmm. um now what's interesting is we don't really get to see primo and pascal against each other in person right it's 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 always arguing by proxy with somebody else or arguing against the idea because when they whenever they're together there is this sort of like um they're both kind of putting on faces or or keeping up appearances around that which i found really interesting yeah well, and, and the obvious thing, too, is, that, you know, that Primo, uh, Re- um, Remy and Ratatouille has the advantage of working in a three-star restaurant. So those people don't have to be taught, you know, what great food is, 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 is supposed to taste like. I mean, that's already a company of, of foodies. And, of course, this film kind of precedes the, the foodie movement. But, I mean, it, I, I, it's, it's an interesting concept that Primo has, but... I don't think it actually works that way. I don't think, especially given where that restaurant is located, and this is going to sound kind of um, snobby, uh, snobbish, I suppose, but based on where that restaurant is located, if you take Pascal's as a kind of indicator, um, and the way that Pascal describes his customers, which is they don't want to look at the plate of food and say, what what is this? They say, give me a good steak or or, or whatever. I mean, I Primo is so is so um pushing against the flow that it, it's it seems like his failure is is almost predetermined right that i mean people are not going to come into a, a restaurant like his and learn to eat that food that's not why people are going out to eat so it's it's almost as though there's something fundamentally doomed about their about their enterprise from the beginning but what i find interesting is in that same conversation where where pascal is talking about the steak right and says well they want to see a steak. I like steak. Uh, he also says, uh, 
give people what they want and then later you can give them what you want yeah. which is it which is interesting because it's a weird inversion of um give people time and they will learn right yeah you're right no you're right so 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 i found it interesting that, that it's like they both have a strategy but built into that strategy is the if i sacrifice what i do it dies so it's like in giving people what they want can you ever get back to giving them what, what that's exactly want? what i was going to say it, 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 even if pascal believes that and i'm not sure i believe anything pascal says even if pascal believes that his restaurant certainly doesn't embody it and i and there's no evidence that his restaurant is ever going to if it even even is capable of producing the kind of food that primo does i mean but is that why he wants primo so badly (laughs) what's that is that why he wants primo so badly? yeah yeah i mean yeah he yeah yeah i i that's a good point i guess i guess he thinks he can get back there uh with with primo um but i think there's that little 10 15 second scene when the chef comes running out of pascal's on fire and i'm like that tells you a lot about what happens in that in that kitchen. If a, if a if a chef is setting himself on fire, this may not be the best the best kitchen going. So right, right. Well, and 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 I mean, two other things that Pascal says to um, at different times to uh, Secundo is he says um, this, and these are actually both at the end. He says your brother is a great investment, <laughs> right? So so he's even looking. If we're thinking about art and commerce, he's even looking at the art which he recognizes. I love. I love the moment. Ian Holm is very fun in this movie. I love the moment when he eats the timpano and he stands up and says, I oh. should kill you. And it, and it's this tense moment. It's, it is um, Ian Holm channeling Joe Pesci, which he's doing yes. a lot of this movie, I think, but, but, it, and then he says, I should kill you. This is so good. So it's yeah. like, he gets that. He knows he would need to go to the paradise to get food. He can't get at Pascal's, but then at the same time, after that, he says to to Secundo, um, "I'm a businessman. I'm anything at I'm anything. I have to be at any time. What are you right? So, so <laughs> right. he is he is basically saying like, like I am not a a chef. I am not somebody who's interested in food. I'm interested in business. And your brother's an investment. Um, mm-hmm. And that you know, so so that becomes the that's sort of the final put all the cards on the table you know situation when he's explaining why he set them up." Uh, with the uh, the false Louis Prima lead. Well, I don't know if there's such a thing as um, typecasting Ian Holm in film movies, but we should, we should remind people he's the voice of Skinner, of course, in Ratatouille. So uh, for whatever reason, he gets he's, he gets cast as the uh, as the bad the bad chef for the bad guy. Right, right. But see, my my introduction to Ian Holm was that he also plays Bilbo Baggins in Peter Jackson's Lord well, of the Rings. Well, that's true too. So yes. it's like, so it, it it is interesting that this movie does have a. I mean, Ian Holm is English. Tony Shalhoub is Lebanese. Yeah. So you know, it, it's I, I was I was a little surprised that Ian Holm was playing an Italian here, but it actually he does a. It's a great performance. He does really well. <laughs> Um, but but I thought about Pesci all of the time that I saw him. I thought, well, this is he's he's sort of saying, what would what would Joe Pesci be like in this, and can I and, and can I get to that spot? <laughs> so as you talked about on a larger level, this is a movie about uh, about the American dream. So I want to circle back to that because I'm interested in thinking about how to how do different people in this movie represent aspects mm. of of American of the American dream. So we've already talked about Primo, right? I mean, Primo is looking for an opportunity to practice his art with a kind of freedom and integrity. And for him, whether it's in America or as we learn, you know, whether it's going back to Italy and working in the restaurant in Rome, right. He's, he's just looking for an opportunity to, 
to practice what what he believes in and what he loves mm -hmm. right that that is his dream yeah. um for secundo um he is looking for um really a, an opportunity for he and his brother to have sort of made it on their own i think it's really important that they are recent immigrants that there is this sense of like this is a place for opportunity for us to set ourselves up and he expresses this so much in the uh, when he's in the car with Phyllis and he is laying out like, I mean, if you're talking about this is a movie also about love and sex, like he's basically saying like, I don't want to do this until I have achieved this other thing. Right. Really? It's like, I need to feel like I am stable and secure financially and other ways on my own terms. So he's um, in this. So in that way he denies, he denies that relationship moving forward and it really stalls out because of that. Um, who are other characters that you think of when you, I mean, you, you talked about the Bob, the Campbell Scott character and like for him, the American dream is the new it's next year's model. Now it's the next sale, right? That, that seems to be a big piece of that. Yeah. And well, you've already, you know, I think you, you've already alluded, alluded to Phyllis, you know, in that scene in the car with, uh, with, with Stanley Tucci, you know, they, they keep asking each other kind of, do you know what you want? And I think that they're, in a sense, they're they're trying to figure out. I and mean, I think she knows she wants him. He thinks he wants her, but as you said, he's not. He's not quite. He's not quite ready for that. There's there's Anne, uh, who I think actually has an attraction to, to Primo. Um, perhaps that's what she wants. Pascal maybe thinks he has what he already wants, but he thinks he wants a little a little bit more. Well, exactly, because he says the line, uh, it's never too much, it's only not enough, right? Yeah, like that's exactly. that's that's his worldview. So he's got a boat now. What's he gonna do with a boat? But he has a boat. <laughs> the the one the one character that's kind of a mystery to me, um, in terms of motivation or what she wants is Gabriella. Mm -hmm. Um you know, I mean, obviously she's there because she adds a little element of um, revenge to uh, to Secundo. Uh, and it also, in a way, it almost made me think of a of a movie made under the, under the Hollywood code, uh, Sam, because we discovered, you know, that Secundo is not exactly an honorable person. I mean, here mm -hmm. he is cuckolding um, Pascal and... Reviewers can't determine whether Gabriella is actually a mistress or a wife. I'm I'm not really sure uh, or a partner, but you know. So he's at any rate he's doing this behind Pascal's back. He's doing it behind Phyllis's back. So there's a sense in which Secundo's dream can't come true. If I think about it in terms of the old time kind of Hollywood morality, because he's kind of being a sleazebag uh, mm -hmm. behind the scene, and and Gabriella, she she's there. I guess she she's almost like an observer. You know, she's there maybe for that conversation that she and Phyllis have uh, after Phyllis gets sick outside the theater, and they're kind of talking about you know men in their lives. And Gabriella, maybe okay, so she wants a cowboy. I guess there is mm -hmm. something she wants. She wants a cowboy. She wants a she wants a she she wants a real man, not not the man she's got. Well, I find it interesting that the three women in this film all have an attachment to at least a conversation about going west, about mm -hmm. a frontier, right? So um, Anne is reading the book about the pioneers, right? Yes. And they talk about that. And, you know, in, in, in <clears throat> uh, Primo's version of that is cowboys. And she's like, no, no, people on a wagon train. So, so there is this sense of like, maybe, maybe there is opportunity. I mean, I, she doesn't express this, but... I think somebody who's reading that is, you know, is like is thinking mm. about, you know, is there is is there a land of opportunity that is not this? And then the fact that 
that Phyllis and Gabriella have this conversation about the West. And for, for Phyllis, she has been in it's too vast, but for Gabriella, she's sort of thinking like, maybe, maybe actually that's what I need to do. I need to get my strong, silent, cool, always there cowboy, you know? <laughs> so, so, so that, that is a, I mean, it is a, especially the idea of going West is a distinctly American dream idea. So mm-hmm. they, they, they all, that's all articulated in those characters, but maybe it's a little less clear what you find out West. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so we should talk about this as a, we, we talked about this as a food movie a little bit. Let's, we should, we should just uh, get into it. I loved, um, and I almost wish there was more cooking scenes. Like, like mm-hmm. I, um, my favorite is uh, when they're making the pasta. Have you ever made homemade pasta? I never have. That's one thing I have not yet attempted. I have done that before. It's quite fun. It's, it's, it's not hard uh, in terms of like, it's, you saw the ingredients, it's eggs, flour, and, 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 and oil. And it's just a lot of rolling. Um, but it was exciting. It was, it was fun to watch. And like, I knew this was a great food movie because the second I got to that scene and ever since then, I'm thinking, all right, when I get to the weekend, can I carve out enough space? I want to make pasta. I want to make ravioli (laughs) or I want to like, because it's, um, it, it just makes me want to get active doing that. So that's always that's always a good sign. Um, and then um, I love that this movie has the the timpano as this like signature dish that I don't know if I mean I assume that's a real dish. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I'm curious what it, uh, even when you're thinking about the the food you see in this movie, what are the things that you are most drawn to? <laughs> well, that's certainly that timpani, but the fish. You know, and uh, I just I I love fish. And uh, when they when he went to the fish to the market to buy the fish, and then the meal's going on, I'm like, "Where's the fish?" And then finally, the fish came out. So certainly, probably the fish is the is definitely the the biggest dry draw for me. I think it's interesting that that as the meal goes on, you keep seeing stuff you you weren't aware of. Like I didn't right. like you never saw that pig, and all of a sudden they, they rolled all up. This. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, um, I. For me, it's the risotto, um, and and okay. I love the I love the big plate with the three different risottos. Yes. And the thing that would drive me crazy is I'm sure they would not allow you to have all three <laughs> that you needed to pick. And like, because because I'm a big I'm a big risotto fan, so so the idea of like the pesto, the seafood, and the kind of plain was mm-hmm. that that that's my thing. Um, so so you have all these great food visuals. Um, I love when they take the timpano out. Yeah. And um, it's it's almost uh, religious or sacramental or like a birth, I guess, would be the other way to think about mm-hmm. it. Right. They mm-hmm. they take that off and they're looking at it and, and Cristiano reaches out to touch it and they slap his hand away. <laughs> but then the next move is they it's a shot just of the of the, the, the dish and you see their hands going and, you know, that they're touching for temperature. Right? And yeah. uh, I, I assume but like but there is this sense of like. This is a a sacred object that we need to lay hands on. I, there there there's something um, that reaches the religious in that moment. That I, I and really I've had enough things come out of the oven uh, about which I'm anxious, especially if I have a guest that you totally can relate to that moment and uh, realize that even the great chefs have those emotions or those fears that it's not going to going to turn out. Mm-hmm. And then they slice into that thing, and it is absolutely absolutely amazing. Yes, yes. I don't know, I don't know how you can eat anything else having eaten that. <laughs> right and that comes pretty early in the meal that yeah, becomes yeah. the you know b- before everything else um you also get this scene of of primo and ann in the kitchen um where he is showing her how to make i think is it florentine sauce is that what he's yeah, making? Yeah, yeah yeah and um you know and he has this line that to eat 
uh, to eat good food is to be close to God. Yes, yes. And um, Ebert had a, I think it was from Ebert, had, talked about this uh, food in this film is not just a subject, but it's a language. Mm-hmm. Um, and that scene jumped out to me thinking about Ebert saying that because earlier you saw um, twice Primo being almost incapable of speaking to Anne, mm-hmm. you know, other than to get flowers from her or things like this. But once he starts to talk about food and share food, it's like all of a sudden he is articulate and poetic in the way that he speaks, you know, where he talks about like the knowledge of God is the bread of angels. Primo is not somebody who talks like that, you know, <laughs> to, to Anne, but, but when, but when we're in the world, in the world of the kitchen and in the world of food, it, it's like it supplies a language for him, and I really loved that moment. I also, well, I, as long as you're talking about Roger Ebert's review, I, I, I love the way, to get back to one of our earlier topics, I love the way that Ebert then uses food imagery to compare this as a film to other to Hollywood films. He said, I reflected how many Hollywood movies these days seem to come with a side order of spaghetti and meatballs mm. and mashed potatoes. So it kind of goes back to that original image. So there's a sense in which the, in, in which the film is kind of... Um, what it's saying about food is also what it's saying about filmmaking to kind of, kind of circle back to the idea that in the same way that this meal is prepared, that's also how they're trying, how they've prepared this, this film for us. So um, one of my favorite shots in this movie, I mean, my favorite shot is the obvious favorite shot of this movie, but, but, but one of my other favorite shots is the one you pointed out when it's, when it's the final course and nobody's eating and it's, it's this pan across the table almost like a tableau because like people are talking, but there's not a lot of movement other than the camera scanning across. And all I could think about was it was like uh, a, a sequel to Da Vinci's last supper. Right. So like, like, cause even, even um, uh, Pascal, when he looks at the table says, ah, it's the last supper. Like when he first walks in and it feels like this, this sort of like um, you're watching everyone almost in a, almost frozen in time. Um, reacting to um reacting to the meal reacting to the experience of the night thus far in the way that really in the way that da vinci likes to show uh in something like the adoration of the magi or in the last supper like different Mm. human reactions to uh an important event you know but this is now their reactions to this meal that they've just had. You have one person weeping and crying about how her mother was a bad cook. You have one person laid out on the table. You have a person at the piano and it's just, it's this long kind of um, uh, landscape shot. And it's, it's, if you could, if you could pull that out into one landscape photo, it would be a beautiful photo of say of that, that would have this sort of, this sort of feel to it. And Mm -hmm. I, I I really loved that shot in the film. Mm Mm-hmm. No, that, yeah, and, and the, the other thing I'm going to say about, I'm glad we, we brought up the, the filmmaking techniques. The other thing that um, part about the dinner, the, the banquet scene I love is all the handheld stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the film suddenly becomes um, kind of very kinetic. Yes. And, 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 and one of the ways I think you get the energy of that scene is because not only are the people moving, but the, uh, the camera is moving at the same time. And so it's, it's like everything, everything kind of picks up and it, it, it gets very, not frantic, but it gets very energe- energetic. And I think that works really well. The other thing I love about that moment in the film is, um, and maybe this is, you know, compare this to Babette's Feast in a different way. Like when you get to the actual feast, it is about people. I mean, eating food is 
by definition an individual thing because you're putting this thing into your body you're tasting it but it is such a communal moment it is them eating is all about people interacting mm-hmm. you know like 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 everything is about what they're looking at who they're looking at who they're talking to as and then as um primo and secundo and cristiano are like cutting in and out, serving people, saying things to people. It's like the world of communication opens up in a different way. And maybe that's, again, food and language being combined. But um, that's part of the kinetic nature of that food scene as well, is I think it is people doing this, by definition, individual thing, but that creates so much interaction among the people. (laughs) So then um, as the night plays on into morning, you know, Prima doesn't come. Uh, Phyllis discovers uh, Secundo and, and Gabriella kissing. She runs out. Um, it's revealed that Pascal was never going to, or ne- never even contacted Prima. So um, not only did he not come, but it was a it was a setup uh, to begin with. There's a moment that I love in this where Secundo picks up a couple plates from the table and it follows him back mm. into the kitchen and they don't comment or linger on this, but he drops them into the garbage. Yes. And yes. The first time I saw it, I was like, yeah, Wait a minute, did he just throw plates away. Mm-hmm. But it is, it is his moment of realizing like, well, this is over. Like, like this stuff doesn't matter anymore. This restaurant is over. like, that was, it's such a great moment that it would be easy to miss, but um, because they don't linger on it. But I really loved that, that moment as we're sort of moving towards the end of this film. No, I mean, I, I had I had the same reaction, Sam. We're like, really? He just dropped him into the garbage, perfectly good plates. But you're right; it, it's exactly it's his way of expressing uh, how deeply the disappointment uh, and and the sense that what's the point in saving the plates, right? We're not going to need the plates anymore. <laughs> right, right. So then uh, we have the sort of climactic uh, Primo and Segundo on the beach talking, and then wrestling fighting yes. <laughs> and and what's great is like they they are they have been brothers this whole time but like that is brother it looks like brothers fighting right it does not look like a choreographed fight it looks like there's a lot of kind of kicking of sand and rolling around and it's like they don't it's it's clear these are people who don't know how to physically fight very well but they just have to, right. it's like they're trying to exercise something from themselves yeah exactly yes um, and then this this leads to the the phenomenal ending of this movie, where you know night becomes morning. You see Segundo working, uh, walking um, back to the restaurant. Um, he goes into the kitchen, and what I love about this is this is a five minute unbroken shot, uncut shot. But whenever something like that happens in a movie, you don't know that that's what it's going to be. You're at first, it's just a shot, and then mm-hmm. as it gets longer and longer, you start to realize, like, oh, this is happening. And you watch him uh, wake Cristiano up, who was sleeping in the kitchen, and then he makes uh, he makes eggs, and you you watch the entire process of him make making the most beautiful eggs you've ever seen. Um, tears off bread for 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 the two of them, leaves, and you notice when he does it, he leaves a third of the eggs in the pan. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And then um, then Primo walks in, Cristiano eventually walks out, and, and it, you have the two brothers sitting together. They don't say a word to each other. Right. And uh, first, Segundo puts, I think it's Segundo puts his arm around Primo, and then Primo puts his arm around Segundo, and they're sitting yeah. there eating, kind of looking forward, not looking at each other, but they're, they're sharing this moment. Um, so to your point, it is both an open and a closed ending. Like, you get a 
you get closure on the conflict of the night before to a certain degree that mm-hmm. it's like we are still brothers i mean like 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 you you get that but you don't get anything in terms of uh i ass- i mean i make assumptions that i assume primo is going back to rome yeah. i don't know whether segundo's really going to stay in america i assume he is if i if i believe what he said but i don't also don't know about his dependence on his brother or his connection to his like you don't know that you know, you assume that this restaurant is over. You assume, you know, you have to do all this stuff, but it is such, it's an amazing shot and it's an amazing long shot and such a great moment. And then cuts to black. Yeah. And, 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 and it's also, I think, uh, you know, very much part of the independent uh, indie film sensibility we talked about earlier. And that is that it, you know, it eschews the, the, the potential Hollywood ending, right? That I mean, you you, you kind of know from the beginning that the big night is not going to turn out as they planned, and I think it's in part because of the kind of film it is. And you you're watching it, and you think if you, if you came into it not having no, not knowing or having seen it before, you come into it thinking, um, I just get the sense this is not the kind of world where dreams come true. So it, it's also in that sense, ultimately, a kind of um, I don't know if it's criticism is the right word, but it's a kind of a commentary on on the on the American dream. As I was saying earlier, the idea that you can come here and you know make it in in America. Well, maybe maybe some people can't, and it's not it's not that there's anything wrong with them. There's something about this country isn't always receptive or, or hospitable to people's to people's dreams. I also think it's significant that it's Secundo who makes the perfect eggs. That it's yeah, not, it's yeah. not Primo that, that, cause, cause right. one of the things that, that Primo says in that fight is like, I have tried to teach you, I have tried to do this and you've never learned anything. And, you know, and I don't know what he means by that. I mean, it, I don't know if he's talking about cooking or life or what's important, but it sure seems important that Segundo makes this breakfast that it's like, no matter how good that meal looks the night before, the thing I really wanted those eggs. <laughs> like, yes. I like that. That's the, because that is also like. I mean, it's sacramental. It, it feels like, I mean, it's literally breaking bread, right? He's pulling right. bread off of that. And it is this like, again, food as a language, food is the language of reconciliation, you know, yeah. in this moment. And it's, um, and, and so the fact that it is both an offering by Segundo, but it's also like, also illustrating this thing that is your life. Like, I, I know a little bit about that too. At least, at least I can do this simple thing. And that's one of the things actually with, with chefs like that, like the, the judge of it is not the complicated thing you do, but can you make the simple things perfectly? You know, that, that, that that's actually a really good point. I, uh, I, I said last week, I was watching this competition called five star chef. And when they're trying to decide between two contestants, they decide they're going to have a mixed steak. Mm-hmm. And the chef running the competition says, that's it. If you can't do a good steak, you don't know how to cook. So I think in this film, it's if you can't make a decent omelet, uh, you don't, you don't know how to cook. So absolutely. So is there anything else you want? We're coming to the end here. Is there anything else you want to talk about with this film that we haven't gotten to? I just, well, a couple of things. I, was, I wanted to just to comment on, you know, the signature song for Louis Freeman's film is uh, Buena Sera. And um, the, the lines in that film are, are in that song, Buena Sera, senor, Senorina, Buena Sera. It's time to say goodnight to Napoli, though it's hard for us to whisper Buena Sera was that, with that old moon above the Mediterranean Sea. In the morning, Senorina will go walking when the mountains help the sun come into sight. And by the little jewelry shop, we'll stop and linger while I buy a wedding ring for your finger. In the meantime, let me tell you that I love you. Buena Sera, Senorina, kiss me goodnight. I mean, I just think that... 
that song was not an ac accidentally chosen, right? It's kind of mm -hmm. got it's kind of got everything everything in there. And then one of the other songs is called Mambo Italiano, and Rosemary Clooney is singing it, right? And it's about going back to Italy and discovering that things have changed. Yes. Uh, a boy went back to Napoli because he missed the scenery, the native dances, and the charming songs. But wait a minute, something's wrong. And it's all that now they're doing the Mambo Ital Italiano, which actually Dean Martin made the, the, the song famous. Anyway, so I just think every one of these songs in some way is, is commenting, and those two in particular. Uh, the other thing I want to say is uh, my, my mind was kind of working on one of your opening questions, um, Sam, about film set where somebody important is being waited for. And it suddenly occurred to me that that is the plot of so many Westerns. Yes. So yes. I thought about, I thought about High Noon, thought about Rio Bravo, My Darling Clementine. And, and basically in that case, you're waiting for the villain to show up so the big gunfight can happen. But I think that so many of those films are built around that notion of waiting for somebody or something uh, to show up. Well, and what's more, uh, what's more American dream than the Western to a certain yeah. degree. And, and that's where you get the whole, I mean, it makes sense out of that, the, the, the sense of like the women talking about going West and the pioneers and all that stuff. That's a great point. I, <laughs> I knew there was something that's like, gosh, this feels like a trope, but I can't think of, I can't, that's exactly it. It's it building to building to, to the moment. You're absolutely right. Um, the only other thing that I had was just, um, as I mentioned, the cast of this movie is uh, is pretty loaded. Um, and I think at the time of this movie coming out, the only person who had an Oscar nomination was Ian Holm mm -hmm. for Chariots of Fire. But Stanley Tucci, Tucci is later an Oscar nominee. Minnie Driver. Uh, Allison Janney is an Oscar winner. Mm -hmm. The weirdest casting is Mark Anthony in this because he oh, goes on. Right, yes huge latin american pop star and he plays this tiny little role in this uh in in this movie to the point where i'm like is that the same guy and i had to look him up and be like oh in fact it is so like this would be a very expensive cast <laughs> later on you know but but it it's it and again that speaks to i think the the 90s independent thing of like these character actors who are really good and let's put that let let's instead of having a big star let's collect all of these people who are really good and give them the opportunity to be really good in a movie like this. I mean, and, and if you're a big star and you've been in those Hollywood productions or you, you, you aspire to, I think that having a film like this where you can kind of sink your teeth into really interesting characters with mm -hmm. good dialogue. And I just, oh, I, I, one other thing I have to say, I mentioned big laughs in this film. I just, I, I just roared with laughter over the conversation about raining outside yes. versus raining inside. It, in, in part, Sam, to be frank, because it's the kind of thing I would have said. If right. somebody would have said raining outside, I would, I would have, you know, my, my latest thing is I want people to stop saying asynchronous online because I don't know how you would have asynchronous face-to-face. -face. Right. Um, but, you know, so it's those redundancies that drive me crazy. So I'm very much on Secundo's side. It's like Primo and Pascal. Like, what are you talking about? Well, you don't need to say raining outside. It doesn't well, what, what's also great about that is it's the one time where Primo and Pascal are aligned are, against are Secundo. Yes. They're like... Yes, <laughs> you don't make sense. You're right. That is that is 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 one of the 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 great little moments in this movie. So, Barrett, what do you have for us for next week? Well, I I can't get off of this arc of of, uh, of food movies. There's just so many good ones. So uh, I, we're going to go to Ang Lee's uh, 1994 film, Eat Drink, Man Woman. Uh, Fantastic. Which was the first Ang Lee film I ever saw. Well, I have never seen this. This is a movie that I'm I'm very much aware of, but I have never seen. I'm very excited. 
to watch this. Uh, Bear, thank you so much for recommending this film, for having this conversation. Uh, I, there's really nothing to spoil in this movie. So if for some reason you listen to this but haven't seen this movie, we can't do justice to the the visuals of the food. It is a, a beautiful story, really well acted, uh, really thoughtful and interesting and fun. Um, so I, I highly recommend this movie. So thank you for recommending this. Thank you for having this conversation. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Eat, Drink, Man, Woman in the video store. Mm-hmm.